Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're going to speak with Polly Price, who, believe it or not, had the joy of being able to teach me in law school about legal methods. But she's gone on to do many great things beyond that. And we're going to talk about her new book, which deals with the pandemic, the U.S. response to it, and the history of pandemic policy within the United States. Uh, Polly is a professor of law at Emory University, but I'm going to let her talk a little bit about her background, and then we're going to dive into the book and uh, talk a little bit about the policy decisions around the pandemic response and what we can learn about it going forward. Polly, welcome aboard. Thank you very much. It's good to be with you and to see you again. Likewise. Uh, thank you for being on. And we're coming at a very interesting time here vis-a-vis uh, -vis the pandemic. We seem to have hit a we've bounced off the lull uh, in terms of uh, the danger around COVID and so on. But before we get into that a little bit, take us through a little bit about what got you uh, interested in the subject and, and how your background informed that. I became interested in the subject of disease control, I think primarily after I became a law professor, because uh, as you will recall, the Centers for Disease Control is just up the street from Emory Law School. I have worked in public health law for a number of years, including uh, some uh, work in Texas along the border in tuberculosis control. And then in 2017, I had a grant from the Carnegie Corporation to write the book that is um, Plagues in the Nation. How did I come to, to that? I, I was interested in the historical aspects of how our laws to control contagious disease and face epidemics had come into being. So I look at, in this book, I take a look at uh, various uh, epidemic emergencies in America's past, look at the formation of the CDC, how we got where we are. So um, I have since become a professor of global health at the Rollins School of Public Health, in addition to uh, being a professor of law at Emory. And it's the combination of those two things, I think, that put me in a unique position when COVID hit. There aren't that many law professors who were looking at the issues of how law and government officials, how our legal system responds to epidemics. Well, it's peanut butter and chocolate. And, and at the same time, it seems like the laws are being formulated as we speak. So it's a pretty cool time to be uh, able to see the, the historical context and then to see it uh, being applied on the spot and uh, with, with stakes so high. Maybe take us through a little bit about the history of pandemics in the United States. Uh, I mean, we've gone back to 1776 and, and even before that, uh, you know, the settlers and so on. What should we be thinking about in terms of what the United States has gone through in terms of uh, the ability to deal with disease? I think we need to focus on the fact that the United States has one of the most decentralized public health defense systems in the world. And it that shows it, it has both good aspects and bad aspects to it, but some of the fault lines come through in pandemics like uh, COVID. So if we look back through history, uh, one of the chapters in the book, I talk about yellow fever epidemics at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. These primarily affected the South, but they were such a regular occurrence and so frightening as they moved up from the coast, people would flee cities where, when the first uh, yellow fever case appeared or the rumor of it, they would flee and go North. What ended up happening for um, almost 50 years, course of 50 years, cities and states 
um, throughout the South would uh, quarantine against each other, not let travelers come across state lines. Cities would barricade themselves, not let travelers in. It had a huge economic impact, um, but it was this a reaction and fear of one state, one town, one county. They were concerned that their neighbors were not controlling disease and allowing it to spread further north. So they would impose these quarantines. In any event, at various points at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, Southern states held conventions, they called national quarantine conventions, begging Congress to have some kind of federal role in this to try to prevent this economic harm, to uh, try to give some um, assurances to other parts of the country that these epidemics could be controlled in the cities where they first emerged. So I think that's the underlying story of many of the um, historical epidemics like yellow fever that I look at is that in the United States, you can see that uh, an outbreak anywhere can become an outbreak everywhere, depending on the ability of the local government perhaps the state government to control that epidemic. So, so it's our federalism that has both good and bad aspects to it, but that it's really when you compare how the US performed to nations around the world, what really shows is that, um, that uh, decentralized public health system. So you've got sort of a state response, a federal response, uh, maybe even a town response. So as you say, sort of this federalist notion, uh, where did that really hurt the United States in terms of response before COVID, uh, before our COVID experience? I think in the beginning, it was a resources issue. So I was on some calls with the National Governors Association, um, and they were asking the questions about how they could acquire uh, PPE, the personal protective equipment for health workers, what sort of measures they could take, but mainly acquiring resources like that, testing supplies. Um, so especially with the resources, some state governors banded together to form purchasing groups, essentially, because otherwise you had 50 state governors competing against each other in the marketplace and driving up those prices. So uh, that was probably bound to happen anyway. But at that point, it would have been better. And we have since uh, rationalized that system a bit if the federal government had used its contracting power to do that purchasing and then not that it's necessarily paying for it for the state, but it's preventing the states from competing against each other on the open marketplace for supplies like that. So I think that was that was one of the first issues that uh, we looked at. Um, in terms of how did it affect the outcome, it's not clear to me that the, the, the federalism uh, the federal government, I think, could have done more to help protect, provide both testing but, and to help protect um, uh, our most vulnerable citizens where states were either unwilling or unable to help protect them. So I think that could explain one of the, you know, what I would like to see going forward. On the other hand, um, the United States had phenomenal COVID vaccines ready before anyone else. And I know that I used to, <laughs> I like to think of that as a miracle. I know it's money and science, right? But that was really a phenomenal game changer for the United States. It's the federal government that can fund those sorts of things. And it's um, the other sort of issues about whether you control uh, your borders. You had, you had states, you, you, I'm sure you'll recall this, uh, requiring out-of-state travelers if they came into quarantine for 14 days. Um, and so it started with Florida and Texas 
uh, trying to prevent people from coming uh, from New York or Northeast or travelers, or at least keeping an eye on them. You saw some communities trying to, almost like yellow fever days, trying to prevent um, uh, travel travelers coming in, uh, partly to preserve limited resources. And then as uh, then you would see the tables turn with large cities uh, when they had uh, imposing 14 day quarantines based on an infection rate in other states. So I think that um, it, it really is that, that federal resources could help more rather than uh, that, it, that the federalist system itself is, um, is, the, is the problem. Yeah, I mean, I, as I recall, I mean, I lived in New York City through the whole thing, which was a real bummer and probably a bad idea. Uh, and it, it was interesting to watch as our governor, uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, took the reins of leadership and, and seemed to be doing a very good job. But then the, I would say the state response and his response, I guess he gets credit or blame for it, uh, wobbled a little bit from what was being conveyed to the public. And that that was a problem. And so, you know, you take that across 50 states and then sort of a, a different conflict between the states and the federal government in terms of the information they're getting. That's a recipe for a real disaster, I would think. How do you evaluate that in terms of the information flow that went back and forth between uh, the federal government who's doing the, you know, the, the vaccine work, uh, they've got uh, hopefully sort of this bird's eye view of the data uh, and can help direct policy and then things that are working or not working on the ground at the state level. How do you, this is really getting back to the federalism question, how do you evaluate the effectiveness of that and maybe the breakdown in information transfer? The communication, I think, was, um, as you pointed out with the, with your governor, with Governor Cuomo, I remember being very impressed that he was daily giving updates and talking, uh, reassuring people, explaining. Um, it, but that, again, depending on which state you're in, even you're in the next state over, right? You, uh, you're getting different information. There's, I think the breakdown was uh, it, Americans have very different sources of information, and we ended up in a situation that I could not have imagined. You know, I was writing this book at the time. I could not have imagined um, that we would have a situation where the, the response that is uh, deemed to be the, the most effective, uh, whether it was face masks or uh, business closures, quickly became identified with a political party. And, and I think once that happened, the information, where one got one source of information was um, made all the difference in terms of how well we communicated. So the CDC itself, um, certainly they, uh, people that I know there would be the first to admit that there were missteps by the CDC in terms of communication. But at the end of the day, uh, the state governors were in charge. We actually, if you get right down to the nitty gritty, uh, disease control, contagious disease control like tuberculosis is divided among more than 2,500 local public health departments. Some states fund them well and they run well and some states do not. And um, in terms of how we um, think about that communication, I know that's a concern for a lot of the states, but where would the source of information come from? So what surprised me the most and I think other observers, was that governors used uh, their state emergency power, essentially, to declare states of emergency that went on for more than a year. It's the first time all 50 states in the United States declared states of emergency. 
that went on for more than a year. And if you think about what those laws were, um, when you declare a state of emergency, it's usually for something like a hurricane or a you know tornado, earthquake, some natural disaster where you need, the governor needs to be able to move quickly, to uh, be able to bypass the legislature in certain ways. And those are designed for very short-term things. They're not designed for um, a pandemic that's now gone on for two years. How would you compare the U.S. response to the the global responses uh, that you watched uh, you know, from, from Georgia <laughs> and talking to others in the government? What did we do right? What did we do wrong compared to everywhere else in the world? I think at the outset, what we did wrong was a, a failure in having a testing capability so that we we saw it spreading in, you know, first from China, then to Europe. We initially had, uh, you know, very good sort of quarantine practices in terms of uh, we evacuated people from China and we had them quarantine briefly. But because we didn't really have widespread testing, it was all over the United States before any uh, local government really could even, um, whether the public health departments could even identify what exactly was there. So that was not just a problem for the U.S., but in terms of compared to, say, uh, uh, countries in, in Europe that had better testing early on, that might have been, that might have made a difference. I also think it, it was just also fascinating to me that we watched, first of all, to see if you recall when um, when the when China locked down the Wuhan area, that's an area larger than Chicago, and it locked it down, and uh, it, that failed to contain it. Then we saw hospitals over, overrun in Italy and Britain, and uh, why we thought we would escape any of this, you know, why we didn't learn more lessons. We see uh, face masks use in other nations. And um, that just that, that would become more easily accepted than it would here. So it's uh, again, it's it, it's just a very difficult uh, situation for all nations. And we did better than many. But I think part of the um, part of the failures in, in the U.S. had to do with uh, we couldn't really agree, first of all, who was in charge and second of all, what we should do. So. Uh... We've now got a pandemic under our belt, and uh, the world has a joint experience in shutting down, uh, understanding what economic levers need to be pulled and pushed to keep things moving. Uh, I think people, uh, I, I view this almost like 9-11 and travel, uh, where you know it's different now, and people are now used to different, and we have to start getting around that in terms of pandemic and disease response. What would you? What would be a couple of bullet points that you submit to the decision makers to say, you know what, we've we've got we've learned some things here. Uh, if something like this uh, were to happen again, uh, what would we do to put a little more structure and a and a calmer framework around it? Two things. The the first is while state legislatures right now in, in the past year and in the coming year are. Uh, considering measures to reform state laws to respond to pandemics, to keep in mind that we that no pandemic is the same. The next one may have no resemblance to COVID. And so that there needs to be a, sort of a nimbleness to government in its ability to respond. So for example, I would say it's a bad idea to pass legislation that says uh, face masks can never be ordered in any city in this state, no matter what. 
um, and that's actually happened in a few states, right? So it, I think we, we, we um, our reaction to some of the political disagreement risks giving us poor laws going forward. So I would say that we need to be very careful about how we change laws now. The second thing is, I think we ought to remember what were we worried about before COVID hit from a public health perspective? And here's one of the things we were worried about, uh, drug-resistant tuberculosis. We, uh, our public health departments in the United States work very hard to keep that under control. It's a huge problem globally, not so much in the United States, but it's because uh, public health departments work very hard to control. They identify tuberculosis cases. If someone tests positive, they offer tests to others. They offer treatment. Treatment can take uh, more than a year. If treatment is interrupted, that risks having drug-resistant tuberculosis develop. And drug-resistant tuberculosis is as bad as it sounds. Um, so in Atlanta, about uh, eight to 10 years ago, there was an outbreak at a homeless shelter. And it took a while for public health authorities to sort of isolate where it was coming from, how to deal with it. Um, there was not a good resolution. Eventually, the city of Atlanta purchased the homeless shelter to try to um, contain, well, to, to address a number of problems. But the result was um, that particular strain, the CDC traced the strain, it spread to 11 other states. There were at least nine deaths and we're still counting those. And they can trace that strain all the way back to the homeless shelter in Atlanta. So, so that tells us that this, um, a again, a failure of one city, one state to contain an outbreak, it affects other states. It affects the rest of the nation. Why should it be just that state or city's resources that the rest of the nation relies on to protect it? The uh, You were writing the book, or uh, help remind me how this worked. You were writing the book as you're finishing the book as COVID was coming out. <laughs> what would you do differently now that uh, that, that was happen happening concurrently? Well, my publisher would have very much liked the book to have come out before COVID hit because I had uh, pitched it and the Carnegie Corporation funded it when I said, we have antiquated laws. We're going to have a problem if we um, were to have the kind of pandemic that's expected. So yes, I mean, having it out earlier my publisher would say, yes, you should have done that. <laughs> but I would have made a lot of mistakes. There were many, many things that surprised me about this. This is a better book because I saw how we responded. I saw where the fault lines really were. I think, you know, I, I would have gotten a few things wrong. On the other hand, I wanted to write the book uh, and I'm glad it's coming out now. It's just to remind people, hey, this isn't new for us, you know, in the terms of 200 years of history. We've had... Uh, similar crises. We've had similar uh, uh, disputes that ended up in the legal arena that we had uh, political leadership squabbles about who was in charge and what to do and whether people, uh, you know, what sort of rights did they have when a public health or a health official, um, you know, ordered wearing face masks or ordered business closures? What were those rights and how did courts deal with it? So I just wanted the the book, I'm glad that the book is coming out as it did. I, it saved me from some errors um, if it had come out before COVID, but also I think it's just an important reminder to people that this is as, as unique and weird as it feels to us in the scheme of our history. We've dealt with a lot of these things in the past. Really, really cool stuff. And uh, I have it 
uh, en route as we speak. Uh, can you tell us how do we find the book? Uh, people who are listening to this want to find out more. Uh, tell us how to contact you or keep track of you and where they can pick the book up. Well, I have a, a website, plaguesinthenation.com. So that's the title of the book. Uh, you can also get there by polyjprice.com. But that uh, website has links to where you can purchase the book. It also has an online bibliography and some other neat things that I think people might want to uh, be interested in taking a look at as sort of um, additions to, to the book. There's always more to say than you could possibly say in any book, as you probably know from your own. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and and so, so the excess has ended up in various spots on the website. But yes, plaguesinthenation.com will get you to uh, links to how to get the book. Uh, that will be in the show notes. Polly, thank you so much for being on. What a terrific reunion. Uh, it's sad that it's around a pandemic, but uh, uh, really enjoyed listening and hearing about this. Thank you so much. It's good to catch up with you. Terrific.